Thanks, Dave. Morning, everybody. Hey, we are, uh, we're just going to jump right in this morning. If you're, if you're new with us or haven't gathered with us for some time, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew since the fall. Uh, and now, uh, about a month ago, we transitioned to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And at the very beginning here of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing, this is his great sermon, instructing people what it is like to live in the kingdom, what, what um, aroma and flavor and vibe and feel his kingdom has, the citizens of his kingdom display. And as he begins to teach, he opens up with these nine blessings. These nine blessings come at the beginning of chapter five, and they're called the Beatitudes. That's the Latin word for blessing. And Jesus begins by uh, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are blessed people. They're, this is what the poor in spirit are. They're those who see their spiritual bankruptcy and they embrace their need of God. That's what's happening. They see spiritual bankruptcy and embrace their need of God. And they embrace God on his terms, not on their own. So it's a picture of humility, a picture of need, reaching out for God's strength. And then Jesus transitions and he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, or they will be comforted. Those who mourn are those who are blessed by God, those who find themselves with aching hearts, sometimes in terrible circumstances. And these people need comfort at a deep internal level. Hugs from a friend are good, but an embrace from God is far better. And those who mourn, those who grieve real things, their own brokenness, things that have been done to them, the brokenness in the world, the division, all of the things that we might find ourselves grieving, our sin, we will find ourselves comforted by God. That's Jesus' promise to us. We are a blessed people. He will come through. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or they shall inherit the land. This is where we were last week. The meek are a humble people, a gentle people, those who don't throw their weight around, but those who wait on God to give them their due. That's a picture of meekness. And so God is, has blessed his people. They're a part of his kingdom, and he progressively develops gentle strength in his people. And now this morning, we come to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied or they will be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who know God and have a deep desire for more connection with him. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who know God and have a deep desire for more connection with him, more trust in him, and more glad obedience to all of his ways. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to desire godliness. It's to desire Christ-likeness. Now, if you're at all like me and you read this beatitude, you start to immediately recognize ways that you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
It's like a mirror in some ways. And when I come to this beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I, I glance at myself in this mirror and I quickly realize that I've got salad in my teeth and my hair's a mess. Like that's a bit of what it does. I see how I fall short. And uh, at the very beginning, when I set up the Sermon on the Mount and just gave an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, several different times I asked as we were looking through the Beatitudes in particular, but also through the qualities of those who live according to Jesus's ways throughout Matthew 5, 6, and chapter 7, I asked you um, to assess, do, do I have an internal sense that I, of being drawn to these qualities? Or am I indifferent to them? And so uh, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he asks if we're drawn specifically to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And, he, and he, he says this, he says, I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession or the Christian faith than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of scripture, you can be quite sure you are a Christian. If it is not, or if you're indifferent to it, or just kind of, meh, don't, it, it doesn't do anything. There's no internal draw. He says, then you had better examine the foundations again. Go back to the beginning. Poor in spirit. Need of God. So here is where we're going to go this morning. I'll give you a bit of a roadmap. We're going to look at, uh, uh, we're going to listen to a story of, of real life hunger and thirst from someone among us. We're going to ask the question, what kind of righteousness is Jesus getting at in this beatitude? What, is, what does he mean in particular about, by righteousness? What's he talking about? Then we're going to look at some opposites and distractions to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're going to see the essence of what hungering and thirsting for righteousness is. And then finally, we're going to look at the blessing of righteousness. So I want to ask this question, just to like look back over the, the story of your life. Do you know what it is to hunger and thirst for food? Uh, maybe uh, in, in your growing up life or in, in various periods, seasons of your life, food for you is scarce. And so this touches on something in you. You know what it is like to go without meals. Or maybe uh, you have fasted for extended periods of time, and so you know what hunger does to your body, what it does to your mind, the way it just compels you and compels you and compels you to, to, to satisfy those needs with food or with water. Or maybe you've even had a medical condition that made uh, food, solid food and water, uh, nearly impossible to take in. If you have struggled with physical hunger, physical thirst, here's one thing that you know about it. You know that it nags at you, and actually, I don't think it's too strong to say that it rages at you until its outbursts are satisfied, until you get that craving met. Um, physical hunger and physical thirst consumes our senses. It consumes our thoughts, it consumes our physical bodies. We're just constantly reminded by the hunger that we're feeling. Some of you know a, a woman in our church named Sharon. She's given me permission to share some of her story and, and, and fully blessed uh, this. She's a, Sharon is a member of our church uh, who went without food and water for a period of six months just a little over a year ago. Uh, you, you say, that's impossible, uh, 
Yes, but there were some medical provisions there. Sharon is a profound uh, woman. She is wise. She is fervent in prayer. Uh, She is a fierce lover of God's people, his church. She's likely uh, tougher than the majority of us in this room. This woman is uh, a a real picture of internal endurance, perseverance, and strength. And she had a medical condition in her third pregnancy that's called hyperemesis gravidarum. And hyperemesis gravidarum, it's also known as HG, so I'll call it HG. It's an extreme condition that causes severe nausea and vomiting during, uh, during pregnancy. And so often food and water will, uh, just a, a little bit of it will induce uh, vomiting. So something called TPN becomes necessary. And TPN is total um, parenteral nutrition. It's essentially nutrients in a bag. It's liquid nutrients. And they are fed to you intravenously through your veins. And Sharon had an extreme case of HG. And so she lived for six months, nearly 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with no solid food and barely any water. This is part of uh, Sharon's story. She wrote this. She says this, HG caused starvation and thirst in a way I had never experienced before. We use words like I'm starving or I'm thirsty all the time. But I would argue, she says, that most Americans above the poverty line have never fully understood those words to their full extent. She says, I experienced starvation first as my body slowly lost the ability to manage any food. My vomiting went from two to three times a day to 25 to 30 times a day. I had to choose between throwing up, straight acid, and stomach bile, which started creating a hole in my esophagus, or just chewing and swallowing as much food as possible to dilute the taste. My body never held onto food long enough to digest it, however, so that made vomiting so painful that I often blew blood vessels in my eyes. My own saliva became so aversive at one point that my dentist graciously let me sit with a suction tool in my mouth just so I could have a break. I thought that I had walked through hell, but that was merely the outskirts. Soon, even sips of water became too much. I would try to wet my mouth, and that sent me into a two- to three-hour episode of hovering over my toilet in agony. No matter the pain food or water caused, my longing for it was relentless. Hunger and thirst permeated every part of my being, It became the background noise of all of my thoughts. It even haunted me in my sleep, she said, in her dreams, as she would always wake up right before being able to eat. It was everywhere I looked, everything I smelled, and everything I heard. The sound of someone swallowing water, the smell of my husband's food while he hid in the closet to eat. My illness was the barrier between me and all other people. And then she says, eating is part of our fellowship. It's a common human experience that unites us. There's a reason it was key in Christ's ministry. And so as I sat and watched others eat, no amount of sympathetic smiles could bridge the gap between me and them. I lost my ability to walk and to play with my kids. If you remember Sharon, about a year ago, she um, gathered with us a handful of times in a wheelchair, or she'd gather with us outside of church for an event. She was in a wheelchair. She, that's what she, this is what she was going through at that time, if you saw her. My thoughts felt foggy, she writes, and my memories harder to recall. I was dying, and only counterfeit, tube-fed nutrition could slow down the pace of my body's decay. TPN was keeping me alive physically, but it did nothing to quench my thirst. It did not ease the dryness of my mouth every time I swallowed, so it felt like shards of glass inhabited my throat. 
TPN did not prevent the aching pains rising up from my empty stomach. I never felt full. I was always thirsty and always hungry. That's what she writes about this six-month experience on TPN. Her story teaches us what it means to live physically hungry for nutrition, where food becomes the total focus of our lives. And in this beatitude where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He's using physical hunger to point us to a greater theme and a greater reality. A commentator named D.A. Carson and a theologian, he says this, that the normative way of the kingdom, so the norms of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, require that men and women be thirsty and hungry for righteousness. That, that, a, that a, a consistent pang for the righteousness of God be ever-present and driving us, that our desires be aimed at the pursuit of God's righteousness. Now, this is where we need to ask a question. What is the righteousness here that Jesus is speaking about? He's telling us that a person who desires or craves righteousness will be satisfied and will be filled, but we do need to answer that question. What kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about? Another question, too, um, what does it mean to be filled? Like, what does Jesus have in mind with our filling and our satisfaction, as well as are there things, even good things, that we put in front of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Now, um, a, bit, a bit of technicality here, uh, but I'll be brief, and, and we, can all, uh, we can all grasp this. <clears throat> in our English Bibles, in our English New Testaments, this, there's, there's a Greek word that is translated um, oftentimes, sometimes righteousness and other times justify or justice. It's the word that we see um, often, we'll see, whenever you see the word justify, whenever you see the word righteousness, it's the same Greek root or the same Greek word that is behind it, that is under it. And so um, when the word, when you come upon a passage that says that we're justified by, not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ, that is the same word that Jesus is using here in this beatitude for righteousness, but it, but it has multiple meanings and senses based on the context. So when you see the word justify used in your New Testament, um, it's speaking of a legal quality, that we're made just, that someone is declaring something to be true about us. So something is granted to us or something is done to us. We're made just. Like I quoted from Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul, he's kind of arguing about, uh, about how a person is saved to begin with, how a person is spared from the wrath of God and reconciled to God. And, and the Apostle Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified, that's that word righteousness, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So their initial coming into the family of God, that's what he's speaking about. But when the word righteousness is used, it can be used in multiple senses as well. So it kind of gets a little bit confusing, which means that we need to read the context around passages. We can't just lift verses up off the page and isolate them from what came before and what comes after. We need to see context. So when the word righteousness is used, it's used in two sentences, 
or two senses rather. It's used to speak of something like we're justified, we're made righteous, something that is granted to us, the righteousness of Christ received by faith. But it is also used, and this is what we need to hang on, this is the point this morning, it is also used often to describe a moral quality. It's used to describe uprightness or godliness, a moral quality that God intends for us to pursue. So there's partnership here. There's our will and our life and our choices that are engaged in pursuing godliness, pursuing uprightness. And God wants us to pursue these things, not on our own, with his help. But it's not, we're, we're not a passive participant. We're we're an active participant in the pursuit of this righteousness. So, for example, even in Matthew chapter 5, if you go down to verse 10, the very last blessing here, the very last beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed when others come against you and revile you for the sake of your righteousness. So it's this sense of righteousness that Jesus is actually using here in verse 6 as well. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So Jesus is talking, he's describing a person here who hungers and thirsts for the righteousness of God. Therefore, godliness is the driving influence of their lives, and they'll only be satisfied, truly satisfied, when they find it. So Jesus is not telling non-Christians in this beatitude, 5-6 here, blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's not telling non-Christians here how to pursue righteousness. He's telling the people of God how to pursue righteousness because they're already under the blessing of God. Righteousness is what the people of God love. Godliness uprightness, holiness is attractive to the people of God. Those who are non-Christians, there's still a, a poor in spirit here. Your work is repentance. If you pursue hungering and thirsting for righteousness without actually coming before the Lord and admitting weakness, it's just a, pursuing and hungering and thirsting for righteousness is just a, it's, it's a moral ethic for you. But there's a change that has not already occurred, salvation that has not already occurred within you. So that's the sense of righteousness that Jesus is getting at. And there's an opposite of righteousness. And, and I'll be brief here. I think uh, that this is pretty intuitive for most of us. The opposite of righteousness is unrighteousness. The opposite of righteousness is anything that is opposed to God. So wickedness, ungodliness, we use the word sin to describe anything that's opposed to God's will and to God's ways, to his heart, to his kingdom, to who he is. And so anytime you and I sin against God, practice unrighteousness, practice ungodliness, we're essentially choosing something in place of God. Uh, there's several lists in your New Testament that describe just kind of the works of unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, he, he'll talk about the works of the flesh, which are the works of unrighteousness. He says they're evident. They're plain to see just by your lifestyle, just by your way of life, sexual immorality, 
What he has in play here is fornication. So that's any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. You're, you're, you're sleeping with somebody who, is not, who you're not married to and covenanting with. That also includes homosexuality, bisexuality, lesbianism. It, it, sexual immorality encompasses all of these things as well as adultery, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's a long list. There's a lot there, and it's just one among several in the New Testament that is pointing us to, to assess the fruits of our lives, the fruits of lives of those around us. And then Paul ends by saying, I, warned you, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who make a practice of such things, continually just giving yourself to them, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's a, a real clear picture of what the opposite of righteousness is. But there are also um, distractions to our pursuit of righteousness. There's just things that get in the way of our pursuit of righteousness. There are all kinds of imposters, many of them good things that we as individuals and whole communities put in front of the pursuit of righteousness. And even Jesus here is he's very explicit. If you go on in Matthew to the next chapter, chapter six. He'll talk about those who are anxious about what they're going to wear and what they're going to eat and what they're going to drink. And he says, quote, therefore do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat, what shall we, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? He says for the Gentiles or those who are, are, are not followers of his, seek after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He's preemptively anticipating what you need. And then Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things that you need will be added to you. So what Jesus is saying is that your first move is to seek the righteousness of God. That comes before even seeking after your own basic needs. Now, we cannot afford to get this out of order, to disregard Jesus here. There's far too much at stake. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to quote him again, he says, if every man and woman in this world knew what it was to hunger and thirst after righteousness, if every man and woman in the world knew what it was to hunger and thirst after righteousness, there would be no danger of war. Here, he says, we have the only way to real peace. Sin is the real problem behind everything, everything gone wrong in the world and the righteousness of God is the only answer. Every amount of turmoil in our world, in our country, in our community, in our relationships, every amount of it is due to sin. So we can fix problems topically or we can pursue the heart and the righteousness of God. 
Remember, in some ways, the fourth beatitude, it functions like a mirror. If you're reading it at all like I am, you're, you're seeing yourself in it a bit, and you're recognizing the positive. Like, yes, I do desire this, but also the negative edge of it, which shows that I do not always seek righteousness. And, I, and when I do, I don't seek it all that well. Um, most times, all the time, really, because I love something else more than I love God. And so in light of it, I stand corrected. You're feeling that too. I'm feeling that. It's sinful. It's idolatry. God hates it. Whenever you and I put something in front of him, it is idolatry. Because he knows, and he hates it, because he knows that whatever we put in front of him, we were not created for. We were created for him. We were created for a relationship with him under his rule. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is his rule over our hearts, influencing and directing his people. And when we put something less than him in front of him, it will not satisfy. That is why we chronically shop and we chronically do this and we chronically do that and we chronically do this and we chronically do that. that this is where our addictions come from as we're coping. It's all coming from a desire to be whole but not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, hungering and thirsting after relief without God at center. So you're hearing all of that. And and here's what I want to ask you to do, because this may be what's happening with many of you in the room. The the typical uh, familiar guilt and shame that you just have a tendency to live under uh, is, 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 in pursuit of you right now. And so you're starting to categorize things and you're starting to think according to maybe some old patterns that aren't all that helpful. You wanna change, but you don't change. And so you live under more and more guilt and weight. I wanna ask you to do something. And I wanna ask you to take your guilt and your shame, your typical familiar guilt and shame. I wanna ask you to take it by the scruff of the neck and talk to it and say, no, I will not listen to you right now because I'm listening to someone else. I'm tuned in to the word of God. I want to know what God says and thinks. I don't want to hear from you right now. And so if you can compartmentalize for just a moment, I wanna ask you to do that. I wanna ask you to put some of the guilt and shame that's familiar and typical to you. Maybe you you live under, I need to do better. I need to do better. I should, I should, I should, I should, I should. That's what I'm asking you to put aside for a moment. We seek all kinds of things in front of the righteousness of God's kingdom. That's a fact. As individuals, we put things like material possessions, money, school, grades, friends, jobs, businesses, land, homes, raising children who excel and succeed, our retirement plans, vacations, all kinds of good things in front of God. If it's a good thing, name it. We're putting it there. As a church community, we put all kinds of things in front of hungering and thirsting after righteousness too. 
We hunger for spiritual revival and renewal. Does that come before the righteousness of God, according to Jesus? No. We ache and thirst for moms and babies to live and for women to have every ounce of health care they need, unadulterated. We ache for that to be true in our society. Does that come before hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God? We want super tight community. We want to love one another well. This is how the whole world will know you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Do we put that in front of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? We want people to come to know Jesus and be changed, to meet him, to have a real experience with the living God and forever be reconciled to God and renewed through this life and then fully and finally made new. In reality, when they meet Jesus face to face, does that come before the seeking, the thirsting and hungering after righteousness? It doesn't. Not according to Jesus. Those things are fruits of. They're not first things. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a part of abiding. It's, 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 it's an effect of abiding. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to quote him again, he says this, Blessed or happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are the only truly happy people. Don't get into debate about happiness, the difference between happiness and joy here either. Happy is a good word. We all want happiness. Now the whole world is seeking for happiness. There is no question about that. Everyone wants to be happy. That's the great motive behind every act and ambition, behind all work and striving and effort, and I would say behind every commercial that you see in your media. Everything is designed for happiness. Lloyd-Jones says, but the great tragedy of the world is that though it gives itself to seek for happiness, it never seeks to be able to find it. You resonate with that. Do you see that in play around you, in communities around you? Lloyd-Jones is right. And look at the way that Jesus frames the blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled or satisfied. He orders these words with purpose. We're not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. It's not what he's asking us to do. We're not to hunger and thirst after happiness. That's not what he's asking us to do. We're not to hunger and thirst after being filled. That's not what he asks us to do. He's asking us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And from our hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness, godliness, uprightness, being made like Christ, that is where satisfaction comes from. The sense of being filled and nourished by God. And if we put happiness and satisfaction before righteousness, we miss everything. It never satisfies. So we've, got, we've got to go and look for something else and something else and something else and something else to fill this kind of never-ending hole within us or hunger within us. But when we put righteousness first, we get everything. We're with God. We're experiencing his kindness. We're growing. We may not have all of the worldly comforts that we're after, but he cares for his people. He gives his people the essentials, and sometimes we'll even suffer. And in our suffering, 
we won't be able to see it on the front end, but God will come through for us time and time again. That's what it means that 2020 is hindsight. As we look back over the story of our life, God, where were you? God, where were you? God, where were you? Oh, there you were. You were there. You were with me in the pain. Essentially, hungering and thirsting for righteousness means that we want God's will and we want God's ways above our own will and our own ways. Now, this is something to be really clear with. It's not always where we start. It's often not where I start, but it's where we end up. That's the point. It's where we end up, hungering and thirsting after his ways. So we're repenting after a period of hours or days to a loved one before the Lord. Like, this is what I've done. This is how I've got it wrong. I don't want this. I want this. I don't want this. I want Christ-likeness. We're mixed bags. We mess up. We fall all over ourselves and others. We sin. And our motives are never truly pure. If you're waiting on pure motives in order to take action, you're going to wait until you die. That's the reality. We're consistently mixed bags. But Jesus gives us great hope saying, essentially, as members of my kingdom and family, you are forgiven, reconciled, made new, and blessed. And because you're blessed, you will continue to seek me and you will continue to find me. My spirit is at work within you consistently, drawing me back, drawing you rather back to me, he says, even when my kingdom and righteousness isn't your first inclination because it rarely is. Even Jesus found himself dealing with mixed motivations. He never sinned. I want to be very clear about that. But he found himself torn. His flesh and his divinity, his humanity and his divinity at war with one another as he was approaching the cross. He's in the garden. He's saying essentially to the Father, he's, he's under incredible stress, sweating, uh, blood capillaries are breaking in his skin and it appears that he's sweating blood. He's under so much stress. And he says, I don't want to suffer like this. Take this cup of wrath from me. And then you can see and feel the turn. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. According to Jesus, and here's where we'll, 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 we'll land. <clears throat> there isn't a single thing in all of life not one single thing in all of life that you and I should put before seeking God's ways, God's will, God's heart, God's face, God's kingdom, him. His ways, his will, his heart, his face, his kingdom, he comes first because he is the one who satisfies. So what Jesus is telling us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things that you need will be provided for you. And so be careful to throw the book at yourself and be more hard on yourself than Jesus is on you. Now remember, I'm speaking directly to the church right now. If you're not a Christian, this blessing, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's not for you. I say that gently, but I want to say that truthfully. This blessing is not for you if you're not a part of the family of God. If you have not already come to him, asked him for forgiveness, believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, raised from the dead for your sins and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, if that has not occurred for you, this blessing of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is simply a moral ethic for you. You can try to get after it, but it won't ever come to pass. You're still living on your own. 
So I want to ask that you would come to Christ, that you would lay yourself before him, open yourself to him, recognize your weakness before him, his strength for you, his holiness for you. He is holy and good forever. He loves you. He's in pursuit of you. He's willing, aching to forgive you, aching for you to come home, calling you by name, promising that he will never leave you or forsake you. For the Christian, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, grab yourself by the, by the scruff of the neck and remind yourself of something. You are not perfect. Duh. God is not asking that of any one of us. It's not what he wants from you. He's not looking for your performance. He's looking for you to look to his son as your performer. And Jesus is asking you, he's urging you on to persevere, to cultivate hunger and thirst for righteousness and to keep your focus. We'll suffer sometimes for that choice. Now, just as a, a practicality, as I finish, it's not helpful for you if you're, uh, if you're real type A and love to assess yourself and beat yourself up. It's not helpful for you to look at the minutes of your day to assess how well or how not well you hunger and thirst for righteousness. All of us, if we're keeping track on a basis like that without a hardcore preaching the gospel to our own hearts and heads, we'll be broken after just a few hours if that's the kind of myopic, microscopic like observance and, and criticism of our, of our life. If that's what we're living into, but it is helpful for us, keeping the gospel in view, to look at the overall we, our overall weeks or months or your overall year or years and to assess, asking what's the pattern with prayerfully, with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus for you in your place, with that in view, what's the pattern? Does your life display evidence of hungering and thirsting for godliness? Is that something you think about? Is that something that you care about? If it's not, if it's just not dawned on you, now today, welcome, it has. Let's pursue godliness and Christ-likeness. Are you marked by a desire to do what honors God even when it hurts? The blessing of hungering and thirsting for righteousness comes through a kind of soul satisfaction through a number of sources. As we pursue hungering and thirsting after righteousness, imperfectly, but with God's help because he's kind and good to us, we find that we're growing in contentment. We find that we're growing all kinds of fruit. It starts to just come out of our lives through abiding, through hungering and thirsting after righteousness. We find courage to come forward through our lives. We find that we're more steadfast, not pushed and pulled by culture, pushed and pulled by other people, by other expectations over us. We find that we're love within us is growing. We're loving people who are good to us, but we're also loving people who have hated us and hurt us and harmed us. We're loving our enemies. We're recognizing that a kind of peacefulness of heart and mind is available to us. We're extenders of mercy as we have received God's mercy. We are not giving people what they do deserve. We're staying our hand. We're, we're, we're giving people generosity, grace, giving them what they don't deserve. 
We're recognizing that as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we become students of his word. We want to take in more and more. Our, ad, our appetites are never quite satisfied. And so in our interactions, in our thinking, in our way of life, we recognize that we're operating with a biblical wisdom from above. We're growing in integrity, boldness. I'm just going to say I'm gentleness. And undergirding all of that is joyful confidence that we know God. And he knows us and loves us. We're finding a sense of connection with him, trust in him, and glad obedience to all of his ways. Christian, take heart. You are growing in godliness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Sharon Stone writes this. As I look down at my scars from being fed from a central line, I see God's mercy. I know what it is to hold a physical death of this world and the ever-present renewing life of Christ. I have cried out in agony for eternal peace in the midst of continual physical torture. That season was death, but it brought life. Every molecule of my body craved one thing and only one thing, food. There was no distraction big enough to avert my eyes. No, God's got a planned bow that tied up my pain. There was no busyness that could keep my mind from refocusing back. No amount of Netflix or scrolling on my phone could numb the searing fire inside. I was dying, and yet, she writes, I have never been more fully alive. When I realized the one and only thing I needed was not actually food or water, I was set free. I live knowing what it is to have my whole entire body cry out for something, and now that something I know is a someone. I live knowing that when every single comfort is stripped away, Jesus is still enough. Amen. Father, preach to our souls, preach to our heads, cause hungering and thirsting for your righteousness to bubble up in us. Draw people to faith in you so that they might experience what it is to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We love you. Thank you for your ways toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.